and, and like evolving. Like they, what they wanted to do is almost like they wanted to, you to evolve into this new kind of being. You could still have yourself. You're still an individual, but they wanted you to understand that you were part of something bigger than yourself and that your service was going to matter to the nation. Welcome back to the NSP. I'm your host, Chris Ayotte. On this episode, I sit down for a conversation with Steve Macbeth. Steve's family has a long history of military service, which he carried on with distinction. He joined the Army as a private infantry soldier and eventually retired as a lieutenant colonel after commanding a Canadian battle group. Although you would never hear of it from him, Steve has been awarded meritorious service decorations on three occasions for his performance on overseas operations, twice in Afghanistan and once in Latvia. After leaving the Canadian military, he joined the New Zealand Defence Force, started working on his PhD in strategic studies, was the chief operating officer for Team Rubicon Canada, and has recently returned to New Zealand with his family to enjoy life in the Southern Hemisphere. Steve shares a variety of really cool stories during our chat. Thanks for listening, and now my conversation with Steve Macbeth. Let's start with uh, maybe the, the family a little bit, um, you know, early beginnings. Um, and I think I like, always like to start with not just you, but, you know, your, your folks and, you know, family history and, and where the Macbeths and, you know, the mom's side of your family came from. So, uh, you know, where, where do your folks grow up? Where are they from? Where are their family and the family background? So first of all, Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm, I, it's pretty interesting to be on this side of the microphone and do something like this and do it with a friend. So uh, that's hopefully it goes well, and I, I give you what you need uh, in the end. Um, my family is, um, uh, I guess, would be kind of a quintessential Canadian um, family in that I have a mom who was born in the east in Nova Scotia and a dad who's born in the west uh, in Alberta. My mom was um, the uh, daughter of an Air Force air traffic controller. Um, and so moved all over Canada and immediately, uh, like she would reflect on her life being very lucky of like living in every province across, uh, the country and, uh, seeing Canada from that vantage point. And my dad had a much more localized, um, upbringing uh, in Alberta and a little bit more traditional, I guess. And he, he tells a story about how <clears throat> his mom, who was from England, uh, initially when she came to see that area of Alberta, they had, uh, like a farmhouse, a traditional farmhouse, but there was no running water. And, uh, even though she had just left war torn England, she said to my grandfather, like, either you get me running water or I return to war torn England. Where, where have you brought me? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so my, one of my dad's first foundational memories was, um, his dad and him building a sluice that allowed like at least a hand pump of water, uh, into the kitchen so that his mom could wash dishes and prepare food, uh, and at least give her a, 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 a modicum of uh, civility. And that, uh, I think it's interesting, like one generation removed, um, you know, two generations, I guess now, uh, you had Canadians that were still living essentially kind of pioneer lives. Hmm. And so I think that's an interesting, um, apart from my, from my parents' uh, perspective. Uh, both both uh, grandparents or sets of grandparents uh, were involved in uh, the Second World War. Uh, on my dad's side, he was a geologist um, by trade. 
and uh, entered in and, and became a soldier in the infantry. Um, and met uh, his wife in England, who was obviously having to survive the Blitz and do all those pieces, so uh, invested there. And on the other side, my grandfather was a, my other grandfather was a bombardier uh, with the, um, uh, you know, obviously the, the, the bombing campaign in World War II. And my grandmother was a, like a women's air corps. I don't know if she was a sergeant or what, what, what she was, mm-hmm. but she was in uniform. And their, their wedding photo was quite interesting because there's these two youthful uh, Canadians, you know, uh, just out of, or, or in war, uh, 1943 or 44, they got married and they're both in their uniform. Uh, and I thought, I always thought that was quite, quite interesting, uh, uh in terms of like a, a family history and, and, and lineage, cause they kind of moved through that uh, period of service together. Yeah. So, I mean, did you grow up with a, as a result of that, did your, your mother and father have a, a sense of service? Is this something that sort of compelled them or like, how did that so, so I inform think, you? Yeah. I think the last thing they ever wanted to do, we, we had a lot of like military and, and, um, police service in the family. I had, um, like great uncles and, and, uh, great grandfathers that had served in the RCMP and had established places like Fort St. John mm. <laughs> and, um, uh, and then obviously, uh, throughout the world wars, um, my, my family had served, but my parents specifically did not, um, serve in, in, in the military or, or in that way. But I think that there was always a heavy influence of your, your part in the nation and to be like a productive member of society. And that can come in many forms, uh, but that you, you should, you should seek to, uh, improve, um, uh, like not just your own station in life, but you should be seeking to improve, um, uh, society as a whole. And I think that was probably, uh, um, uh, an ideal, uh, an ideal that they, uh, instituted and they probably got that a lot for their parents. And there was, it's kind of traditionalist, I guess, in the sense of there was a lot of uniforms in our family. Mm-hmm. And so that was, um, uh, part of it. I had, um, an uncle, um, uh, uncle Ken who served actually in the U S Marines in the sixties. And he went down and served in, uh, Vietnam, not once, but three times. Uh, and I had another uncle, uh, my, my, both of these are my mom's brothers that uh, was a Canadian reservist and served in Cyprus. And so from a very early age, these, you know, people had participated in conflict in different forms. And, and so were part of my kind of immediate, um, influence, I would say. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, what, I don't know if you ever had a chance to sort of pick uh, Uncle Ken's brain at all, but what motivated him to go not just sort of once, but three times to, to Vietnam? Those, so, so I was I was pretty young, and we lost Ken in uh, like eighty five, I think, could be eighty six, and I think <clears throat> to um, a form of brain cancer that may or may not be related to um, Agent Orange. What I can remember in his discussions, really, with my dad, um, and then my dad relaying it to me was that initially Ken was down south going to school and uh, um, he was on the road to becoming an American and uh, knew that a draft notice was was coming and uh, decided actively that he didn't want to be drafted. Um, and he thought that the he understood that the U.S. Marines got more training before they went to Vietnam and they were a full volunteer force and thought that it may be wise to work with volunteers rather than draftees. And so that's what pushed him towards the Marines. And then the three times, frankly, is he didn't have a good readjustment upon return to, uh, uh, like stateside and, um, felt at home in, in, in that environment, uh, and continued to go back. Like, I think, I think people do like there's that, you know, we've just experienced a couple of long wars and there's a lot of us that have done multiple tours mm-hmm. and you get into this weird place where you're 
between these two worlds and where are you actually more comfortable? And I'm not comparing Vietnam to, to uh, Afghanistan and in, in that sense, I'm just trying to compare it along the lines of um, relative experience. But I think for Ken, he had a story where he'd gotten off an airplane and immediately been, you know, that traditional baby killer <laughs> type um, experience. That's it's not very pleasant. And he didn't recognize the world that he had just left and he didn't recognize the world he was now in. And so felt, well, I'm going to go back. And after his third tour, he met his wife, Lee, and she really is what kind of forced him to stay home. Hmm. And, and, um, and, and he had done enough and, uh, got out of the Marines and then went on to be a geophysicist. But, um, yeah, his motivations, uh, were, were about, I think becoming an American citizen and then were about uh, continuing to serve in that manner. And then the reason for the multiple tours, I, I believe was that he was a volunteer force. That was what his job was. And then he became more comfortable there because he doesn't, didn't really feel comfortable in, in the States at that time. But I, that's secondhand. So you've got a, a strong family background in, in service. Uh, where, where did you grow up and what did your sort of, uh, early years look like? Well, I was born in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. My dad, um, uh, had, uh, my mom and dad actually, had, that might be an interesting, uh, story. My mom and dad, uh, there is still some service in there and that my dad had grown up, sadly his, his mom had died at quite a young, when he was quite young and his dad was a geologist. And so he was on the road, uh, you know, obviously during his job. And so my dad had kind of bounced around a bit, um, uh, as a child, but they had standardized testing like, um, at the end of high school and he did really well in math. And he had this guy uh, from the Navy come down and say, Hey, are you interested in going to, um, uh, university for free? And my dad said, Oh, nobody in our family's gone to university. Yeah. And so he ended up going to, uh, Royal roads and, um, uh, spending just about eight months there. He, 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 he had, uh, not, he didn't understand the, I guess a quote unquote game, uh, that was, um, right. a Royal military college of kind of, you get brought in, you get inculcated. Uh, and some of these, these things can be quite at the time in the mid sixties, I think were quite rough. Um, and he kind of got a target on his back. I got told by one of his friends because he was a golden gloves boxer in, in Alberta. And they had this boxing competition between third years and first years. And it was really that the first years would get thumped by the third years. And, uh, that didn't happen. My dad thumped the guy that he was doing. And so it was kind of a public embarrassment. I put a target on him. So then he lasted six months in the college and didn't like the games and, and so got out, but he kept the jacket. Um, he didn't have a lot of money. So he kept his railroads jacket and he went to work on the oil rigs. And so he was in Edmonton and he was taking the bus one day. And, um, my mom was on the same bus and because she'd grown up in the military, um, knew Royal roads and knew like, um, like those guys is hard selection to get into that type of place. And, it's weird to see that jacket in Edmonton. And so she, she talked to this guy on the bus. It's like, Oh, do you like, do you go to Royal roads? And no, that's just the jacket I've got right now. And that's how they, that's how they met. Um, and then she figured out that this guy that had gone to Royal roads and was working the oil rigs, which is pretty tough work and not academic at all had a brain. And she kind of convinced him like, Hey, I, I think you should still go to university. I'll work and you go to university. And, uh, so that's how my dad like, became kind of the first of our family to graduate with an undergraduate degree was my mom worked at CN rail. Um, and, um, my dad took a degree in uh, mathematics, chemistry, and physics. And, um, when he graduated, uh, he then got into system control where my mom worked at CN rail. It was, they were just starting to get into the basic computers of 
the systems. And my dad thought that was pretty interesting. At the time, there was no computer science. And so he was a math guy. And so computers are just zeros and ones. And so that drove him into system and control. And we ended up, um, move, or they moved to Moose Jaw to get a job at the uh, Southern or the uh, Saskatchewan Institute of Technology, where he started to um, teach. And so I was, I then came along a couple of years later in, into, into Moose Jaw. And that's uh, kind of where we start the, the story. Hey, the randomness of going to your closet in the morning in Edmonton before you get on the bus and going, I'm going to wear my Royal Roads jacket today. Um, I mean, life would be very different if uh, he was just another another person on a bus without that identifier. Absolutely. I wouldn't be here. Yeah. So I, I'm pretty happy that he, uh, I'm pretty happy that he chose that jacket that day. Um, yeah. And so it gets a little interesting. We're in Moose Jaw for a couple of years and then, uh, it's cold in Saskatchewan. Yeah. Really cold. <laughs> and, uh, back in like, I think in the seventies, quite normal, they had the, um, you know, the, uh, I forget the classified pages that have job offers and in there, my dad, one ads, I, you know, one ads that's yeah. right. And I think that my dad, uh, I think everybody probably did like, oh, I wonder what's available. And he looked through and there's this one job from CETA. Uh, I don't know if it was called CETA back then, uh, but, but, uh, the, the, um, international development agency for Canada. And it was, um, for a job for system and control in Jamaica to modernize some systems. And, uh, Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan was a long way from Ottawa and a long way from the federal government. And so my dad thought, ah, you know, it's really cold here in Moose Jaw. I'm going to, and as he said, I'm going to, I'm going to put in an application this job. I won't get it, but it's just nice to think about because maybe we'll be warm. And, uh, a couple weeks later, he got a letter, uh, you know, old school letter in the mail, got a job offer, did an interview, and, and uh, the family was then off to Jamaica for the next uh, kind of three to four years, um, and, uh, living in Jamaica. And so early in my life, there was this, um, again, and I think probably because my mom had moved around a lot as a child, my dad hadn't been able to see much of the world because of how he grew up. There was this kind of eagerness to explore the world and to, to travel and to not be afraid of, of, uh, taking chances. And I thought that was a, that's a pretty neat part of, uh, uh, life is, is that there's like, yeah, we're going to move to Kingston, Jamaica. So we moved to, uh, uh, New Kingston in a little area called Beverly Hills. We lived in Beverly Hills no way. in an apartment. <laughs> yeah. And that's where I learned, uh, I learned a whole bunch of neat things like swimming and, uh, yeah. And, and I was a very young child and the people there are just beautiful, just beautiful. And, uh, I got treated exceptionally well. Uh, and my dad said at times I was like a peacemaker because even if things, there was tensions at the time because Jamaica was making decisions about its relationship with colonialism, uh, government was shifting. And so, uh, you know, they can't, they don't know who you are. You just have a, you know, your different complexion and you're a foreigner. And so, you know, sometimes there could be tensions at the time. And my dad said that often, uh, you know, if they just pulled me out, uh, that would be it. Like if there was a tension in the, on the street that would immediately uh, make things peaceful. Uh, and so it was, uh, it was an interesting, uh, he said it was pretty interesting, uh, piece. We used to go to this beach. I still have this, 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 um, memory. We used to go to this beach and uh, it was always kind of empty. And so my parents thought it was a great beach to walk on with Steve and you can get used to the ocean. And there's this giant guy, like giant muscular guy. Well, maybe he wasn't as giant as I remember because I was very small, but it's relative. <laughs> and, um, he had the Rastafarian, uh, pieces and he became very kind and my parents got to know him. And, uh, he took me kind of a little diving and he taught me how to like, um, he did it, but he stabbed a conch shell and brought it up. And then he taught me using, um, a fresh water to pull the conch out and then cook the conch on the, on the, um, on the, uh, beach and then blow the horn. Really neat for a little kid. Right. Later on, my parents went to an embassy, kind of like one of those all Canadians invited to a tea party. 
And they said, oh, we had this great experience on this beach. Uh, people in the embassy were shocked. Like, you shouldn't go to that beach. That's a dangerous beach. That's where they run drugs from. And uh, <laughs> my parents realized that likely that guy was the security guy <laughs> for the... <laughs> For the beach that we then had befriended. And the reason the beach was always empty is because everyone knew to stay clear because there's nefarious <laughs> business that goes on on that beach. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I think that was also kind of a neat, uh, it, it, it exposed me early on to, uh, you know, be open to people and, and, and new experiences. And so it was, uh, that was a pretty interesting part of my, uh, or for me, it was interesting part of my upbringing. So, so you get back from Jamaica and, and at what point did you, can you, if you can recall, did you start thinking about, you know, the surface and what that may or may not play in your life? Yeah, there's a big break. It's funny. We moved from Jamaica to uh, Chalk River, uh, which is a little town north of Ottawa where there's a nuclear facility. And at this point in time, kind of early 80s, Ontario is thinking about really getting into the nuclear game with the Candu reactor system. So my dad takes his background in a system control and he gets a job in Chalk River. <clears throat> and that's right near a large military base called Petawawa, which would figure into my life later on. Quite a bit. And uh, at the base at the time, uh, the uh, Airborne Regiment was there. And when I was a little kid, this would have been kind of grade one, two, three, kind of that time. They used to have like Airborne Days. And um, uh, that was my first contact with the Canadian Army. And I, uh, the, they would always have the trucks of soldiers going through town. And, and uh, you got a chance to see them. And they're, you know, larger than life, maroon t-shirts and green pants and jumping out of airplanes. And so that was kind of my first instinct. And then actually I had no contact um, with the forces. We moved away from Chalk River, I think grade two or grade three. And we moved to um, Whitby, Ontario, which is just outside Toronto. Hmm. And uh, the reason we moved to Whitby is essentially located between Pickering and Darlington, which are two large nuclear right. plants. And that allowed my dad to, to work in that um, industry. And uh, that there's no, like Southern Ontario has no connection really, except for some reserve units that I wouldn't even have known about back then. And so the military was not part of my life at all. It was just part of my consciousness because I was really interested in history and military history. And then uh, I went through uh, high school still, uh, and, and I said, oh, I ran into a guy on a bus. Uh, Jeff Trelor is his name. I'll always give him credit. I get on this bus. I'm going to my summer job at uh, the Oshawa Center, and this guy gets on. And I had known him in high school, but all of a sudden he seemed like more physically capable. He's, he had a really sharp haircut. And what do you... what? you know, what have you been doing? And he said, Oh, I, I joined the reserves and I just got back from Germany. Um, and I was in Germany for, and I was like, Germany, how, how did that go about? And so he explained to me what the reserves were. And, and he said, Hey, like even in high school, you can go and do that. And so in my last year of high school, <clears throat> I went and I signed up and I went for a summer. I returned to Petawawa and I went for a summer in Petawawa with the Toronto Scottish regiment. And I did, um, uh, I did the basic training, which at the time was called qualification level two and qualification level three, um, which was basic infantry um, uh, soldier. And um, it was really dramatic. And the guys from this airborne regiment from when I was a child were the instructors. And uh, man, it was a, it was an eye opening experience for that. But I wasn't sure that I wanted to do it. And, 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 and you know, I'm not going to feather in my cap, uh, guys, not to brag, but I, I ended up getting the top candidate on the uh, out of all these um, folks. And so it was pretty interesting. I had success. Um, and at that point in my life, <clears throat> I was unsure of what I wanted to do. And I, I, and I wasn't unsuccessful, but I also hadn't achieved this kind of like um, uh, outward appearance of success in competition with other people. And so it was pretty interesting. But at the end of the summer, I kind of left it behind because I was still outside the GTA. Toronto Scottish was hard to get to. And I kind of 
left it behind and said, no, I, I can't commit. And, um, uh, that was, that was it. That was my initial uh, piece. And I don't think that's uncommon for lots of young Canadians. It's kind of a summer job and then some people stick with it and some don't. And I was one of those ones that didn't stick with it initially. And so I went off and I got accepted into Queens university and, um, <clears throat> that was a big deal. Uh, you know, my dad yeah, was the first absolutely. one to, 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 to go to school and now, uh, here was the, and so for my parents, this was a major focus. Uh, and I showed up and I, I played rugby, uh, at Queens and I rode, uh, like I, I rode uh, in the crew, uh, at Queens and, and really that's what I was doing. Like I was kind of, um, on my own and, and, uh, I was doing school and I was doing okay, but I didn't have a passion for anything that I was learning. And I, and I, I probably like lots of young people were just looking for that spark. Like what's that thing that, that makes me. And so <clears throat> one day we had a politics class. I remember with Dr. Rose and, uh, he said, we've got a guest speaker today. And, uh, and the guest speaker came in and, uh, it just, you know, just, just, um, opened my eyes to a world that I wasn't even really aware of. Uh, he had just returned from Yugoslavia and I think it, it might've been Lou McKenzie, but I can't put my finger on it that it was general Lewis McKenzie who had commanded the, 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 the mission in, in Yugoslavia. But this guy was a dynamic speaker and he, did a presentation and talked about, you know, opening the airport in Sarajevo and Canadian soldiers in action, uh, helping, uh, people to, to, uh, escape the tyranny of ethnic cleansing and the frustrations that he'd had with the UN, um, and the UN headquarters. And, um, uh, right after that, like I was just amazed, like Canadians were off in a foreign country, you know, with, with a weapon, making a difference to, to help populations that were suffering the worst horrors that we'd seen since the end of the second world war. And so I left that afternoon. I kind of, you know, we didn't Google back then. I had to look up where the, where the, where the recruiting center was. And I went down and I had been through it with the reserve. So I had a file there, but I came in and, and, and talked to the recruiting sergeant in a very excited manner. And I said, okay, I want to join. And he's like, oh, it looks like here you, you already had, so you already have some background. I said, oh, I, I do. And he said, well, you're at Queens. You can stay and do another three years. And by the time you're done, you can be an officer. And I was like, oh, that, no, that's not what I want. I, I, I want to go to Yugoslavia. Like, I know what I want to do. And he said, oh, do you want to be a soldier? And I said, yeah, I want to be a, a soldier uh, and I want to be in the infantry. And uh, he said, okay. Um, at the time, they weren't taking a lot of people. And so it was very competitive. Uh, this was 90 five, 94, 1994, 95 that I, I made the application. It was months later that I actually got in because they had so few people being accepted. The Canadian force was in the middle of, you know, post cold war reductions, not increases. And although they were very busy around the world, they were not putting a lot of people through the system for basic training. And so even as somebody who had two years of Queens university and, and was pretty physically capable and had played um, varsity sports and I thought it was okay. I, it still took me <laughs> you know, nine months of commitment just to get into the, uh, just to get into the infantry as a private. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, I ended up not going until, um, 1996, like almost a full year, um, after I signed up. Uh, but I still had that passion. I knew what I wanted to do and I wanted to, to join the army and be a, be an infantry soldier. Uh, as I was shocked to my parents, they were not <laughs> leaving, leaving before I had completed my degree at Queens university. Right. And I said, you know what? Lots of people have different paths and, and this is mine. Like I, this is what I want to do. And so, uh, I don't know that I would be happy if my kids did that today, but, uh, I'm really happy that I made that, that choice at that time. It was, it was the right thing for me. It, it, it allowed me to uh, a bunch of different opportunity. 
Did you did you stay at Queens until the uh, in, until you went to base? No, I didn't actually. And, and so once I was um, kind of freed of that template, uh, I went to look for an opportunity of something that maybe help would help me um, uh, when I went to the army. And I found this job. There was a geophysics company in Kingston, and they had a, a contract in northern Saskatchewan in, in Uranium City. And at this point in time, my parents had actually moved back to Saskatchewan, so there was a home connection uh, there also. And uh, so I, I, I joined this company, and my job was essentially to um, work before the geophysicists went in. We would fly in to like these remote areas of North Saskatchewan or Southern Northwest Territories um, only in the winter, so the, the the very coldest depths of winter. We'd establish a camp, so cut out um, on the edges of a lake, cut out a camp, build Jutland frame tents, uh, put in stoves, cut firewood, and then you know smash through the ice to pump water in, and then set up the kitchen tent. And, uh, and then once that was complete, that, um, that was your living accommodations. And for the team, the technical team that would fly in later, we would take these little tiny skidoos called Elans. They're these tiny little things that actually fit on a twin engine otter. And you can, um, you can, they're very easy to maintain. You can move them just by one person. And we would navigate our way out into the middle of literally the middle of nowhere and then cut, um, cut lines, um, cut out trees, uh, for kilometers so that we could establish their grid for their survey. Uh, and then once the geophysicists land, um, they would give you this backpack that had like a big spool of wire on it. And I don't know what the technical, I don't even know what the technical thing was. I knew that my job was to have the spool of wire on my back. And then I would shoot a bearing through the forest between the cut lines that we had built. And they would have, um, two pieces of wire on skidoos that would move along this cut line. And then I would march on a bearing or walk on a bearing through the woods um, to connect so that they could create a circuit and then run electricity through it. And then that's how they would judge where the best spot was to do a, what was called a borehole survey, where they would bring, then bring in heavy equipment and then dig down to get out um, a sample to be able to test for whatever they were whatever they were looking for. But I can't think of a better way to prepare for basic infantry training than here. We're not going to tell you really what's going on. Put this 40 pound thing on your back, put on snowshoes and walk through the woods on a compass bearing after you've established a tent camp and then middle of nowhere. And so that was what I did for the, for the, uh, the, for the year. Uh, you know, you lived hard and, and, uh, learned how to live like that. And then I went off to Wainwright to basic training. So, so you could have gone to infantry basic training, engineer basic training, or signals basic training because you, you seem to have captured all those elements in that uh, in that job. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was it was really good, and 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 um, it was my first real introduction to um, like northern communities and First Nations, and almost all the guys that I worked with were uh, First Nations guys um, up there, and uh, I can remember just being amazed at their abilities. Um, there was they were so comfortable um, navigating in the woods or if we knocked a ski off of the land, like I was a mess. Like I <laughs> trying to, you know, figure out how to do it. They would, they would know how to like tie up the lack of a ski and then be able to balance it. And, and, uh, uh, or if they knew like open water, like how to survive, uh, yeah. when you're on the lake and if there's open water, if there's slush and how to do these things. And they were, um, an amazing instructor to me. Like I was supposed to be in charge, but, uh, actually, uh, you know, with their skill level and, and, and knowledge, uh, it was a good lesson in leadership for me to let people that were supposed to be by structure subordinate, uh, lead, uh, from that level because they had technical expertise and, and, and only, and, and learn what they're learning, improve at it, and then only influence where you needed to. Uh, it was a, it was a big lesson for a young guy, uh, and responsibility up there it was good stuff. 
All right. So you, you finish off in, in Uranium City and now it's off to, to the military. So where did you do basic training then? So um, basic training for me was um, all done in Wainwright, Alberta. Uh, and so that's a little town on the eastern edge of uh, Alberta, right near the Saskatchewan border. Uh, so it's got, you know, major centers around it, like Lloyd Minster and Vermilion <laughs> that really allow you to take, paint the picture of how like not urban it is. It's a town I think of about 4,000 and, uh, it's a farming community. <clears throat> and interestingly, it was a POW camp in, uh, the second world war. That's right. Yeah. And you know, nothing's too good for our Canadian soldiers, like good enough for German POWs, good enough for us. <laughs> and, uh, in fact, <clears throat> they have a. Um, a POW tower still there as a memorial to, to, to it. But the reality was that Wainwright was so far from anything that they didn't have fences for the POWs. The POWs were Luftwaffe, uh, Luftwaffe uh, pilots that had been captured. And so they were, um, uh, uh, they were there to work the farms. A lot of men were away fighting. And so they used the POWs to, to work the farms. And if they wanted to walk away, they could, and they'd get picked up later and found easily. Cause it's like, you know, the, the little joke of watching your dog run away from for three days is pretty accurate for that uh, or Wainwright. But what's interesting is when the war ended, those POWs then went home to Germany. It was a mess. And a number of them returned and returned to Wainwright. And so now there's a German community, a little small German community uh, in, in, in Wainwright. Um, and uh, you, you'll if you come across like some now very old gentlemen. Uh, they would have been on the other side and they met, uh, Alberta girls and, and, uh, and got married and, and, uh, yeah, and then settled in. And so it's an interesting little part of Wainwright. But, yeah. but I think the point is, is that you leave Edmonton and then you drive into the great nothing for about two and a half hours. And, uh, uh, all of a sudden you end up in this little camp. Um, uh, and it's about as far away removed as anything you can think of. And it was very basic at the time. It was like something out of, a out of a movie because you get off the bus and, uh, you know, it's not well lit. There's no, there's no street lights or anything. So it's, it's dark. And there's these like tin shacks, uh, and they're like half, um, I don't know what they would be called. Uh, the, 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 the Quonset hut, like a Quonset hut. Yeah. Like That's a 1950s yeah. Quonset hut. And, uh, there's just kind of rows of these Quonset huts. And, um, and then there's a very basic, I think everything was prefabbed and supposed to be temporary. And then it just stayed. And so even the headquarters is like a prefab building that's been bolted together that I think one day there was supposed to be a, a permanent one, but it just never got permanent. And so it had this very austere um, uh, feel to it. And you immediately knew like <laughs> something, <laughs> something was coming. Like there was no space wasted. Everything was austere. Everything had a purpose. And and uh, you were not going to have a, a, an easy life. Like there was a, a for the next, you know, 24 weeks. <laughs> So yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was impressive, but I, my first memory was in the airport and, uh, at the time came versus changed, but at the time, you know, um, <clears throat> the sergeants that were going to take me through basic training, these guys had been the ones that had done, um, the UN operation Unperfor, so, uh, UN protection force, uh, and there had been heavy fighting and, and this is what had actually gotten my interest there. And most of these guys had two or three tours in uh, that theater of operations. And uh, they had, at times, it had been very violent. And they had done, uh, there was a battle called uh, the Battle of the Medak Pocket. And the 2nd Battalion, of which I was going to join, this had been one of the battles that they had been engaged in. And it wasn't well publicly known. It wasn't advertised anywhere. 
But uh, these guys were deadly serious about soldiering and were pretty sure that you didn't know anything. And they were going to uh, give you everything, every tool you needed, they were going to let you know. And they're also going to let you know what you needed to shed as, as a civilian uh, to be successful in what you were going to become a professional soldier. And, and uh, that was their kind of goal. And so I can remember getting off the airplane, you know, you walk in Edmonton, you kind of come down the escalator and uh, you can't see anything because uh, it goes into where the baggage recovery is. And there was just these uh, line, like these, 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 um, uh, men waiting for us. Most of them had like short haircuts and mustaches and looked very stern and they had their berets pulled low over their heads and just waiting for us. And then they immediately said, you get your bags, but you'll stand in a line to wait for your bags. And, um, we had a guy, this giant Hungarian guy that had come from Toronto and, uh, he was very slick and he had like slicked back, like a pompadour hairstyle and a maroon suit, like one of those <laughs> 1990s, you know, boys to men, double breasted suits with a mock collar and uh, very pointy kind of creeper shoes. And uh, he, he was pretty sure he was awesome. And uh, <laughs> the sergeants, the sergeants immediately, like he wasn't moving quickly and he's kind of like Joe cool. And they immediately dropped him uh, and like middle of the airport. And they're like, get out and give me 25. And he's like, what, 25 what? <laughs> Push-ups. Not now, in these shoes. Yeah. <laughs> and so they just immediately like demonstrated, like, I don't think you understand. We have control of you now. Right. And you'll do exactly that because you've now like not done it quickly. Everyone can join you. And so this idea of like, oh, you're not in Kansas anymore came pretty quick. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, there's the sort of the initial theater, yeah. which I don't know if you, did you sense that it was theater or did you sense that, oh no, this is, this is going to be the enduring reality going forward? Yeah, no, I, 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 I had hoped that it was going to be theater. And so I'd had a little bit of exposure to this because of my time in Petawawa. And I was very careful to not tell anybody that I had had some exposure as a reservist, because if there's one thing that we learned quickly and they actually asked, like, um, so it's a bad, it's a, it's a, it's a, bad um, nickname, but at West, there used to be a nickname for reservists and they were called a half man. And uh, so the sergeant, I remember he said, is there any half men in the crowd? And you knew what that meant was somebody that used to be a reservist. So I did not raise my hand and anybody who did was immediately kind of targeted even extra because they need to get what the sergeant thought was a bad habit mm-hmm. out of view of part-time soldiering. And so um, I, I, I had hoped, oh, there'll be an initial kind of breach and then it's going to, it's going to ease off. And there is, and, and they taught a bunch of different lessons throughout that training. But the number one thing was like, you're, you're now a professional. Um, we're going to teach you, make no mistake. You're here because you're going to be Canada's tool of violence. And we're going to teach you how to, uh, in a controlled manner, um, uh, uh, utilize that so that you can be a tool for Canada to exact violence on behalf of your nation. And, um, we're going to teach you the discipline you require. And it like first day, you know, uh, you're also in a military structure. So all the things you understand of right and wrong still apply, but we have extra tools that you don't know about. And I can remember on the very first day we had to go for physical training. And it means that at five, at five fifteen, you needed to be standing outside in your physical gear, um, like your jogging, uh, jogging pants, your sweatshirt, gym, your gym gear, your gym, your gym kit, workout gear, and um, you had to be standing in two ranks, which is just two lines in front of each other, and you had to be there at, right at, at five uh, five fifteen a.m. And then the officer <clears throat> um, would take you for a run, 
And we all knew that meant like it was, and there's no NCOs coming. So you knew that the officer was the youngest person and probably the fastest person. And so you knew that like, it was not going to be pretty. Uh, <laughs> and, but most importantly, you had to be there at 515. And so, um, I can remember getting out and it was cold in Wainwright at this point in time, like really cold. I think it was, uh, starting to be end November when, when yeah. we started. And so it was just getting wet. And so people were trying to stay inside until like 514. And so they didn't have to go stand outside in the rain. And, uh, I remember getting out and it was like 514. Then all of a sudden, like out of the shadows, like this sergeant appeared right at the door. Cause there's only one entry and one exit out of the Quonset hut. And he started like counting down. He said, there are 30 seconds until you need to be formed up on the road. And that's the only thing he said. And then he said, there are now 20 seconds until you need to be on the road. <laughs> and then he got to 10 and he started counting down and there were still like five to seven guys inside messing around or using the bathroom for one last time before they had to get out on the road. So he started counting down and the officer was um, on the road with us and we're standing there waiting on knowing what's going on. And so when he got to zero, he like closed the door and held it and people came to the door, bang on the door and they're trying to get out. And he's like, you're late. You missed your timing. You're going to remain with me. And uh, okay, sir, carry on, take the troops out. And we went for a run and left these five guys behind. <laughs> <laughs> By the time we got back, um, the sergeant had, um, you know, voiced his displeasure to these five folks. And then I think they did their own uh, forms of physical uh, training. But the other thing that happened is they got charged, militarily charged with um, AWOL, which is a way uh, without leave, I think, mm. but got charged for not making their time. <clears throat> and the point of the sergeant was, you're in a system now that five seconds matters. Someone is going to decide one day to support you with artillery or with machine gun fire. And if you're not on time, you can cost people their lives. And this is your first day and your first lesson. And we deal with this stuff in the military. Um, we can deal with it this way. I know that was a bit of theater. And in that day and age, the charges didn't stay with you. They were called battle school charges. And it got people used to the idea of military discipline and military um, judicial process. And then it showed that you could get what was called extra work and drill. And so you already had a busy day. And then at the end of the day, you would have to go off and do these other kind of tasks um, and not have any downtime or be able to prepare for the next day. So it became a self-professing prophecy because those five people, like none of them made it through that training. None. Right. And it was because they were right under the pump right away. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we were already not getting sleep and we were already under pressure and they had added pressure to them. And from this sergeant's perspective, there was no one in there that was, 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 was valuable enough. And so they get called recycled and they get held into a holding platoon. So it was a big lesson for us right away. Like accountability is a thing. Being on time is a thing. Listening to direction is a thing and, and responding to the, the, um, the word of command and not anticipating it was a thing. And, right. uh, yeah, it was a pretty interesting, uh, introduction. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's always important to establish what the standard is from the outset to be to be fair to everybody. Now, whether the standard is a fair standard is a different conversation. But you've got a bunch of Canadians coming in who, who have no idea what you know, this new world is. Yeah. So, if you're establishing the rules from the outset, it's it's probably more helpful for for everybody. Yeah, I think that also that like like I said, it was hard to get in. People that were there really wanted to be there. Right. Because you weren't there. You weren't going to make a lot of money. There's a pay freeze on the go. And I can remember like all those first days, it was all about shedding your uh, skin. 
and, and like evolving, like they, what they wanted to do is almost like they wanted to, you to evolve into this new kind of being. You could still have yourself. You're still an individual, but they wanted you to understand that you're part of something bigger than yourself and that your service was going to matter to the nation. And I remember one of the key parts of that they had this thing called the Mad Dog Cafe. Um, yeah. and, and it was a little, again, in a sea can. I've been to the Mad Dog Cafe. And they had yeah. this little seat and, and, and it was a barbershop. And it was, this was really where I thought this is like the movies because we got marched down and we had to stand at attention in coveralls outside of it. Again, outside in Wainwright, it was cold and you like be tough and resilient. The sergeant went in and they can only take in two at a time because there wasn't room. And he went into the barber chair and I remember watching this and it was just like zero on the sides, one on the top. Like there was no question. There was no ask. There was no like, and, and you came out and immediately that one act zero on the sides, one on the top immediately bonded you as a platoon and immediately identified you as a recruit. Mm. And so when people saw you at a distance, they knew what you were going through and then maybe how they should interact with you because you were going to be more responsive. And so on base, it was a way of them like aggregating you as a platoon because now you're all the same. You're all shared. You all have shared experiences mm -hmm. and, and this one experience. And so I don't know now what the standard is, but I know for me, uh, like that, I'll never forget that zero on the sides, one on the top. And everybody went in one way looking individual, like that big Hungarian dude, that pompadour zero on the sides, one on the top, like <laughs> all that beautiful hair <laughs> was gone. Yeah. And he was now like on his way to becoming a soldier. And you have this very basic, basic training, but it's very basic feeling. So yeah, I remember it, it left a real imprint on me. How did, um, how did your time in Wainwright prepare you for going to your first unit when you finish your basic training? Really well, uh, I think. I think really well because um, the, the the sergeants live with you. So if you think you're there for 24 weeks, so are those sergeants, and they're away from home. There was only two permanent staff members um, that were actually posted to Wainwright. So that means that these guys were um, away from home uh, in, in, to do the qualification level two, the basic training, and then the and then the qualification level three. That's a lot of time to be away from home. And so they had to commit that. And then, so they really got to know you. And so when you got through the really basic, the theater, I guess is how you called it, there's still toughness, but they had to start as you get towards like week 14 of your infantry training, you start to, you know, become what they want you to be. And which is eventually you're going to be able to put on the vaunted, like, Princess Patricia's Canadian Infantry Cap Badge, and that means like you're no longer scum, right? And uh, and and you're not just a waste uh, a waste of skin. I think they would they would say. And so so they would start educating you on like what are kind of social norms. What's it like? Like is this what it's like, Sergeant, all the time? And then all he's going to get yelled at in the unit. They like, listen. You get to the unit, much different. And so they would prepare you in that way. But the things that wouldn't change was the expectation of like performance. Like recognize that you're going to be the new person in a unit and you need to perform to be able to fit in. The work is the reward. And, uh, I remember remembering like, it's like you're trying out for a team every time and then you show up and, uh, whether it's whatever the work is, you're always kind of like you're earning your reputation. And that's what those was. Those was their biggest word. Like you only have one opportunity to start your reputation and however that starts, uh, will, will sadly in the organization stay with you for a long time. And it'll be very, it's very hard to, rec you know, if you have a bad one, it's hard to recover from. So what was your first team that you joined when you, <laughs> when you left Wainwright? So I, I, I went to B company, uh, Bravo company, 
to PPCLI. I joined, uh, I, I came in and, and I had this fantastic sergeant, um, uh, hopefully he doesn't mind me using his name, Andre Kluche. And this guy had kind of done everything. I remember thinking like he, and he was uh, a smart guy. He was well-spoken. Uh, he was, he really cared for soldiers and he had, uh, he had been like in the Canadian Airborne Regiment, so he'd been a parachutist, and then he'd also served in Croatia already, and so he'd had operational experience, and he really brought that uh, to it. And when we were in garrison, he was a very relaxed guy, and uh, he would you would do maintenance, but he was like I don't know, I guess a cool guy for lack of a better term. And then um, man, did, when he got to the field, he was like a different beast. Like he uh, so serious in the field because that's where you earn your keep as a soldier. And, uh, so he like game face, I remember was his kind of, uh, his thing like, okay, game face is on, like we're now in the field. And so now there's, there's, it's still fun, but, um, serious business. And, uh, I always thought that was an interesting balance. Um, you know, I don't want to say it's a dual personality, but that ability to, Hey, we have time and we can be relaxed. I'm going to mentor and advise and do all the things you're supposed to do in garrison. And then you get to the field and it's like, okay, this is, this is where we do our business. You know, um, this is serious. And, uh, he had an interesting sense of humor because my first outing wasn't that successful, uh, in the army. And so my job at the time was as in your, your first time actually going to the field and yeah, doing the, yeah. So you're kind of nerve wracked because you, all you've done is your battle school. And now this is the first time that the professional soldiers are really seeing you and they're making this, this, uh, connection back to that discussion about your, your reputation right. is going to start being made like day one in the field. And you might've been a good guy in garrison or you might play hockey or whatever, but none of that's going to matter. And at that time in the army, um, we spent a lot of time in the field. We would spend kind of uh, two and a half months in the fall. And then we would also do a course like to become, learn how to drive a track or, uh, sorry, uh, an AP, an armor personnel carrier, or we would learn. Uh, and then in the spring, we'd do another couple of months, um, usually in Shiloh, Manitoba. And then we would go out West and spend another month. So we're probably in the field like four to six months a year. Mm-hmm. And so there was really an opportunity for them to get a feel for you, what it was like to live in austere conditions. And so this first time you go out, everyone's really trying to impress. And he had a whole section other than his master corporal, which is his second in command and him. Everybody else was from my battle school course and brand new guys. And we had, I had done well in battle school. And so, uh, you know, that gets back early. So I, I, I think I had finished, um, third on the course. And so the, the, that was like, oh, this guy can probably be trusted. And so at the time, my first job was to be a light machine gunner. And, uh, we had this weapon that was, uh, like, a it's fed by a belt instead of a magazine and you're on the edges of the section. So if you imagine a rifle section spreads out in what's called extended line or arrow had these different formations in the field, when you come under contact, simulated contact from the enemy, the machine gunner's job is to be able to look at the ground and then at that low tactical level, how can they best support um, the section? And uh, they're allowed to make decisions. They move a little bit more freely because Mm -hmm. they need to be able to do that so that the sergeant can then prepare the assault force to go in. And so it was kind of a feather in your cap if they trusted you with it because you were also have to be technically proficient with that gun because you're going to, it's called firing them into the trench. You're going to put those bullets as close as you can in front of your friends um, and then to suppress the enemy in the trench. And then you're going to, on your own with no one watching you, you're going to swing called swing fire just slightly ahead of them so that you're going to keep bullets in front of them. They feel as though they're being supported and then they can get into the trench and, and, and it's a technique that's done, but it takes some responsibility and some thought and some, if you think about um, uh, the idea of firing bullets near your friend, trust, uh, 
there's a lot of trust there. Yeah. And so to be get given that trust right away, um, uh, it was a pretty big deal. So I was like pretty, pretty stoked. Anyway, we go out to do our first practice attack. We'd done a bunch of like without live rounds. And so it had all gone quite well. And we call it dry firing where you just go and you practice the formations and you practice this. But to do it live, <clears throat> live being live ammunition, that's a big step in a young soldier's um, life. And we'd only done one live range before. We had done our qualification shooting. And then we had done one live range in battle school, which was very heavily controlled because it's all new guys. So this is our first one where it's like, okay, this is, we're no longer going 80%. This is 100% speed. And uh, <laughs> I was in it. Like, so we go out, we're walking across the open prairie, if you can imagine, in kind of an arrowhead uh, formation. I'm on the ends of this. And then you hear the simulated enemy gunfire and that forces you to move up into extended line and you have 10 people across it probably measures 100 to 150 meters and people need to be able to communicate clearly across this 100 150 meters because you're moving and now you're throwing bullets forward and uh, you need to be able to communicate and you need to be able to move and you need to be able to shoot those are three things really you have to do in this situation and so i started to like um, shoot. And then I would shout like I'm moving and I would go to move. And when I moved this time, I stepped in a gopher hole <laughs> and it did not, did not go at all. Like I had wanted it to go. And I immediately like collapsed like a bag of hammers. And, uh, like I could just feel my ankle go over and the, the gun, which is loaded with a belt of ammunition goes flying forward. And I'm lying there my ankle, like, uh, and, I, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a casualty on a simulated range. And uh, the sergeant, who's now under assessment, um, right? Uh, you know, there's a pressure there, has to, like, get on me because he can't lose that firepower because his attack will fail. And so, like, he, unforgivingly, he and the Master Corporal were, like, you know, using very strong language that I won't use on the podcast. <laughs> like, get going. And uh, so I got up and I was dragging this leg, this limb behind me. And I, I went through the attack and I, uh, I went through the attack and, and um, uh, you know, put down the suppressive fire. It all went well. And you always finish in what was called a Russian trench system at the time. And so it's like you came across open ground, you get into the enemy objective area, and then you have to clear this Russian trench system. So the attack finishes and they give a debrief. And, you know, the sergeant and the master corporal said to me, like, listen, we know your ankle didn't go well, but no matter what in an attack, like we can't lose that gun. And so no matter what, like your mind has to be like, you will cost people their lives if you don't get there. And that's like, very serious. Like, and I, after I got through that understanding, I was like, okay, but my ankle still hurts. <laughs> this is still a problem. This is still a problem for me. Like I can't move it and it feels like it's swelling. And, uh, they, they, you know, probably had their energy up a bit and they kind of rolled their eyes like, oh, new guy. Like, oh, I hurt my ankle. Like, right. well, we've seen this before. And uh, so is it like the field's too tough or whatever? Like, fine, go see the medic when, uh, when, when you get back. But you have to now walk the 800 meters back. They didn't bring up an ambulance or anything because it was a broken terrain. And, of course, the medic is sitting back there, like, kind of sunning themselves. Having a coffee. Having a, a coffee. Yeah. And, and, and I wander over, and now I'm the new guy that went to see the medic. Like, that is not positive. And uh, so I go in, and, of course, the medic is also, like, rolling his eyes, like, okay, sure, sit down. But then he couldn't get my boot off. And then he had to cut my boot off, and uh, the ankle just, like, blew up. Like, so big. It was so swollen that they had used what's called a back splint on, the, on my foot. And, uh, of course, this is the worst thing that can happen to me as a young soldier. I wasn't even worried about the ankle. I was worried about my reputation as a soldier. That, like, I right. couldn't even survive one simulated attack in a real battalion. <laughs> so then they send you, they're like, oh, this is going to take x-rays. 
you go back to Shiloh and in Shiloh at the time they had this old cold war bunker that was like below, like it was like seven stories below the ground. And I think we we're on like floor four, but think of it like a reverse apartment building, you know? So you, you enter into this thing and it's recycled air and you're all by yourself and you go down and it's like something out of one of those, um, you know, uh, 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 horror movies or, or zombie movies where the lights like flicker <laughs> as you're, as you're going through and there's a certain smell in the air. And so I go and I get put up in bed and then I get left alone. Like no one comes see me. Nothing's there. Like no medical staff. And I'm just like this kid, like by myself. And so at the time, the, 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 where you get your assessments was, um, immediately after the exercise. And if you're done on the exercise, you can't leave the exercise until you got what was called a post exercise report, PXR. And this would tell you like things you did well in the exercise and things you did poorly on the exercise. So then a, a medical corporal stuck in their head and said, Oh, your, your section is going to come see you and your sergeant, but they also have your PXR. And so I knew like I was done on the exercise because I was getting this PXR as an accident. So the exercise wasn't over, but they... Yeah, they came in out of the field. In. Okay. And and really, they, they came in to like, check on me, but there was a, a sidebar to this okay. that was crushing because um, there was some humor that they decided to, like, a joke they decided to play on me. And, uh, of course, I was there and I was excited to see my section and, like, I kind of wanted, like, acknowledgement from the sergeant, like, it's all going to be okay, get your ankle, and then you come back out. So he came in, he did all the right things, took care of me, made sure that I was getting taken care of. When I told him I was alone all the time, he made sure that I got moved and all that kind of stuff. And he said, okay, now it's time for business to go to the PXR. But the section's here. It's a public thing. It's not a big deal. We're just going to do it together for you. Because you were on the exercise for such a short period of time <laughs> that there really wasn't much to write. And so he's like, I, I, I'm going to say that you do all these basic things well, and that's okay, and we'll leave that. But in the points to improve, we've got a significant one for you, and we're going to need you to sign it. And I was Okay, certain. And I was expecting it to be like skill on the gun or something like that. And it was like due to a weakened body and an inability to like sustain himself in the field, Private Macbeth was uh, unable to complete the exercise just due to like a lack of intestinal fortitude. And he's like, okay, sign. And I was just crushed, like just, just crushed in all the sections, like giggle, giggle, giggle. And uh, they let me hang on it. And I was like, oh, okay. And I'll, I'll go sign it because you just do what you're told. And then all of a sudden he's like, nah, I was just messing with you. And he took it away and they had the real one, which was just like, did fine, you know, uh, continue to work on personal weapons drills or whatever. But I, I can remember that. And then afterwards he told me, he's like, well, I also just want to remind you that like, you're going to have to like get better. And then you're going to have to now, all these guys are going to now be in the field for five weeks and they're going to learn about our battalion and they're going to learn about their job. And you're going to be five weeks behind your peers. And we won't know you. We won't know your reputation. We won't know um, how proficient you actually are. And so I want you to get better, but I want you to focus on getting back out to the field because a soldier that doesn't go to the field is not a useless, is not a useful soldier. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so, so now, so now with all your, your experience behind you, how do you, how do you reflect on, you know, uh, on that level of sort of leadership and insightfulness? Um, yeah. I, 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 in some ways I, I recognize like the world's changed a bit. And so some of the stuff that we did back then or how we interacted maybe wasn't wholly appropriate. Um, and maybe would be a bit uh, tough on people. But what I, I can say is that I then went on to have a 25 year career and I think in, by all accounts, reasonable, reasonably successful, but that foundation of those battle school lessons and that foundation of a soldier who's not in the field is not useful were two things that like stuck with me. And I would hope 
that sergeants still today are taking that time to mentor and care for their soldiers in garrison and then are deadly serious when they go to the field and let soldiers know that this is a serious business Mm. and you need to be able to make decisions and you need to be able to support and you need to be there. And I think, um, you know, you had a line just recently that was something like that, like presence equals, what was that? Presence indicates interest. Yeah. Presence indicates interest. And so I hope that the sergeants are that invested still. And I tried to be, um, in a different way. I tried to do that as a leader, um, in terms of being engaged, um, and, and deciding what my priorities were going to be. And, and that early understanding of where the priority was garrison versus field, um, really stuck with me. And I think I, 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 I maintained that through my time in the military that I, I really focused on what it was to be a, uh, an operational leader or field soldier. Okay. So, I mean, after the, uh, you know, you've, your time in, uh, your time in the battalion, I mean, what was the, the conditions that led you to, um, make the choice to move from the enlisted ranks to the officer ranks? So, um, I, first of all, it wasn't something that I actively pursued. Um, I think it was a bit of luck. And again, it was like having uh, fantastic leaders, uh, around me. So, um, <laughs> it gets out quick. Like if you've had a little bit of education, uh, in the army at the time, there's very few soldiers, uh, that had had any like post-secondary education. And I'd had two years at Queens university. And so I kept that to myself, but when it came to like time to write memos and such, I kept on getting tagged, uh, with that type of thing as a private soldier. And, um, uh, I had demonstrated some, uh, types of leadership. And so I was quite lucky. I had been the OC, uh, the officer commanding. So the major, uh, um, uh, I had been their driver, their, um, armored personnel carrier driver. And had been given the responsibility of being the second in command of the uh, transport section in the rifle company, which was quite important in a mechanized battalion. And so it was learning how to do that stuff at that level. So this 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 officer um, didn't have a degree, and uh, he had also he had been from the ranks. He'd been a master bombardier in the artillery, and then had commissioned straight over uh, and had become an infantry officer um, afterwards. And a uh, great guy, a guy named uh, Mike Fawcett, who's presently like a cattle rancher out uh, near Wainwright. And yeah. it was just, just, just was probably like, again, just like Andre Cluche was one of those foundational leaders that had that ability to be professional, but relaxed in garrison. And then come time for the field, like was just uber focused on like being an amazing soldier. And so I, he'd gotten to know me a little bit, like as much as you, as a, as a private gets to know a major, um, what that when you're the driver, we spent a lot of time in an armor personnel carrier together in places like Wainwright and Shiloh and Suffield. And so you do get to know each other. And so we got our deployment orders and we we're going to go to Bosnia. And, uh, I said to him, I said, no boss, I, I really like working with you and for you. And I don't have a choice, but if I get to go on an operational mission, like I don't want to do it as your driver. Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I want to be in a rifle section. Yeah, fair enough. And, uh, and he, he said, he, said he, every he, OC's driver ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you know what? Got it. You know, you've done your time. Uh, uh, and he sent me back. And then, um, because of circumstances, uh, the, I, I again had another excellent leader, a guy named Donnie Askland, um, who, uh, was a fantastic, uh, another, a sergeant. And I became his second in command, um, 
uh, of that rifle section because the master corporal didn't make it to go overseas for a variety of reasons. And so I got thrust into this like very junior, but leadership position, um, for the, for the tour. And about four months into the tour, we actually got a replacement master corporal, someone who could be promoted. And, um, I went to the, the third in command of the section, but by that point in time, you've done four months, you've learned a lot and you actually had to act as the section commander. And, um, it went, it went pretty well um, in Bosnia, and uh, my OC, this OC, said, "Hey, I think you should consider be- being an officer." And I was like, "Oh, like I've kind of heard about that before at the recruiting center. I, I don't know that it's that interesting." Like I, see, you know, I see what you guys. He's like, "Well, there's a program called UTPNCM, which is University Training Plan Non-Commissioned Members." He goes, "Let me tell you something. If you're going to enter into the Officer Corps in Canada, I don't have a degree, which will limit my career and my ability to influence soldiers. But if you are going to go, well, let's make a deal." Let's put you in for that program. And if you get that, then I'll stop bugging you. You'll go on to be an officer. But if you don't get it, I agree with you. Like stay and on your path uh, to continue to be a great non-commissioned leader. And so when we got back from Bosnia, um, uh, it came through. My paperwork came through. And uh, uh, I was accepted into this university training plan non-commissioned member. And, and I was going to go to the Royal Military College of Canada to get a degree and then to learn how to be an infantry officer. And I would return to the PPCLI as an officer in kind of two years' time because I only had two years to do because of I'd already done two years of Queens. Right. Right. So um, I actually got promoted. Uh, we did it. We had this exercise. We got back from Bosnia and then um, uh, the, 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 the time that we got back, I think it was about two and a half weeks. There's a major exercise running at Edmonton uh, called Urban Ram. And this was about... Uh, learning how to fight inside of a city. And uh, at the time, there was an old barracks, a grease ball barracks that was going to be torn down to build the new Edmonton base. And so we were able to go and, and do this really massive exercise. But during that exercise, uh, instead of kind of promoting me on a parade, they simulated, uh, they killed the platoon commander and came up over the radio and uh, said, you know, uh, tell Mr. Macbeth he has the platoon. And that's a big change, right? Uh, I was a corporal at the time. So instead of being called Corporal Macbeth, that was the first instance of, you know, that's the polite way of talking about an officer cadet, Mr. Uh, they call them Mr. or Miss. And um, all of a sudden I was like at shock and I had the platoon that had just been my buddies now looking at me like, okay, make a decision, smart guy. <laughs> and uh, I didn't even know where I was. We're in this massive building and I didn't even know which way was east, west, north, south because I had supposed to be just like moving machine guns around. And all of a sudden this great, uh, this, this fantastic um, warrant officer, Dave Marshall, like it's my first instance of like now as an off junior officer being like how an NCO can help you or hurt you. This guy helped me immediately and was like, hey. We have a relationship. I'm now your 2IC. I'm not your warrant officer anymore. I'm a soldier. I'm going to help you. And I immediately started my education as an officer, like day one. And we had to go secure the building and uh, go through that. But there's a funny ending to that because afterwards they did do a battalion parade to... I don't know if it's promote or demote, actually, because Officer Cadet, uh, like you hold a rank in, in when you're in the ranks, and then Officer Cadet really is a, back to being a recruit again. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, they pulled me out in front of the battalion and the CEO asked me to turn around and face my, uh, the, the, who had been my peers, but now would be soldiers that I would command. And he wanted me to kind of consider this as he like, you know, basically took off my corporal stripes that at that time was on your arms and they put on the, the, the epaulets of, of an officer. And, uh, I was really nervous. I wasn't used to being in front of the battalion. I hadn't done anything like that yet. And, uh, because I was facing away from the CEO, he said, okay, now go fall back in with the officers. And instead of about turning and, and saluting him, cause you're supposed to salute the, the, the commanding officer. Once he dismisses you, then he'll return that salute. I just immediately marched like to get out of there as quickly as possible. And then regimental sergeant major, 
like picked up his pace stick and like it stopped me and publicly in front of the battalion. He said, Mr. McBeth, you are already uh, demonstrating your ability as an officer to do crap drill. Like, <laughs> turn around and salute the commanding officer before you go. So just like breaking my ankle, like it seems like every time I have a transition, <laughs> there's always something that happens that's not so smooth. <laughs> Stumb- stumbling into the officer ranks. That's right. I, yeah. like I went over, but, but then it was, it was very good. And I got to, I got to go to RMC and, and uh, kind of see where the bosses were made. Um, and, and, and I think like having that exposure um, to Bosnia, uh, like I did a, a number of exercises, I got a number of courses and so, but <clears throat> that's only useful as a soldier and as an officer, you have to be very careful not to like take, take all those things as rote and then try to apply those soldierly skills. Um, they're useful to you as an officer, but it's a completely different game. And so I've always appreciated the fact that I was kind of pulled out of my environment and then put into, um, RMC, um, but that I had had that operational experience because, um, that time in Bosnia, we did really good work. War was over by that point in time, and we were resettling people back into where they had been ethnically cleansed from. We had to resettle populations. And so there was a lot of lessons learned. And I learned about kind of like you saw firsthand some of the ugliness of humankind, uh, just enough to get uh, like, oh, bad things happened. And you learned about things like mass graves, and you learned about how f- families were forcibly removed from their homes. And so for a young person, having left Canada, that's nothing that I'd ever been exposed to before. And so it's almost like exposure therapy. You know, like I, I went into that environment and I got to feel like I learned what it was like to live away from home. We didn't have phones at the time. And so there was one satellite phone for the platoon and you could use it for five minutes a week kind of thing. It's very expensive. And so you learn what was it like to live full time as a soldier? What was it like to work inside of an environment? So now people would, after we've had Afghan and Iraq experience, say, oh, Bosnia was so benign. But it had been a major war. There were minefields everywhere. Um, you had to learn, know how to navigate. There were people that were trying to smuggle weapons and do criminal things. There were people that were trying to hurt other people that your job was to protect. Um, there were people that were trying to block roads and your job was trying to negotiate your way through. Like all these things now as a senior leader, you, you would say, oh, okay, well, it wasn't so bad. But actually it's a huge learning piece for me, um, you know, and then having six people, seven people that you're always responsible for. Uh, that was actually probably the biggest part of that. Yeah. And so as a section two, I see like it, you know, people, oh, it's only six, six people in their adults need to hear themselves. But actually you, you learn right away, like six people, each people, each person will have one problem every day, maybe every week. You got to help solve those problems. And that's your job to, 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 to make them effective. You, know, you got to let them build that team and then you've got to take care of them. And that was a big learning point for me. And so when I left that time in my life in the ranks, I think the lessons that I came away from moving into RMC was, okay, leadership primarily is about people. And it's primarily about taking care of those people so that they're ready to go do those things in dark places that we're going to ask them to do. And I think that was an okay start point um, as I learned then how to kind of be an officer. Maybe we can we can linger on the deployment side for for a bit. So you had a had a deployment in Bosnia um, as a as a corporal, um, but you also had multiple other deployments as an officer. Um, yeah. So like when you we look back on those deployments now, I mean, what are some of the things that really stand out with you in terms of? Um, you know, things that inform the way that you, you are now, you know, lessons for life. I mean, whatever. Yeah. Might be. I mean, I, I think I've got a bit of an, an uh, maybe it's useful, a bit of a journey because, you know, my first leadership task was with a section 
And then I returned and I deployed as a rifle platoon commander and I deployed as, um, so that's about 30 people. Then I returned again as the reconnaissance platoon commander. And that's, um, kind of 35 people, but then um, a lot of enablers and you've got, um, battle group and brigade or sort of like, um, you're responsible to a lieutenant colonel instead of being responsible to a major. And then I returned again as a major and had a subunit in Afghanistan. And then my last job overseas was to um, command uh, about my own battle group, which was, you know, just about 1400 people from nine different nations. And so I had this really unique view of like mm. that natural ladder that occurs in the army and those levels of responsibility at each of those pieces. I was privileged to, you know, deploying command in, in a theater of operations at every level that you could command at. And um, I, I think in the end, <clears throat> those, the, the one thing I reflect on from a Canadian perspective is how much we've changed um, uh, in terms of m maturity over the last 20 years. And, um, and what I mean by maturity is that our uh, processes and, and how we take care of our people and how we conduct our missions have matured. And I would say that it's like the difference between playing... Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, double A hockey to playing in the NHL for a little while. And it's not that, that tourists that went before us. In fact, I think if I think back to the 1990s where I wasn't part of the forces yet and they had a battalion essentially group deployed in Africa, two uh, battalion groups deployed in, um, Yugoslavia and, um, missions in Cambodia all running simultaneously. Um, I think there was probably a ton of lessons from back then that we could draw on. And, and I just don't know that, um, we had the same infrastructure or command pipeline that, that allowed us to, to, uh, kind of, um, see those, those pieces. I think it was just a matter of getting in there. And there's a lot of responsibility given to those leaders that were in charge in those theaters, as opposed to the connection back to Canada and the real support that maybe you need to run operations now. And so I would say that, um, you know, on my first mission, uh, Bosnia was a very established mission. My first mission in Kabul was far less established. And we had one of these instances where, um, you know, we learned how immature we were at that time as it applied to working within an active theater of war. Um, because my job then was to lead um, the very first um, uh, convoy from Kabul to Kandahar. And it doesn't seem like much. It's 500 kilometers on Highway 1. But that stretch of road, like the difference in Afghanistan between Kabul and Kandahar is significant in terms of like culture and threat picture. And at this point in time, ISAF, the International Stabilization Assistance Force, had only been operating in Kabul. And now we were, Canada had made the strategic decision to, to, to move down to Kandahar. But we hadn't necessarily made the tactical adjustment to the fact that we were moving into like what was essentially a, a, um, an active um, enemy uh, or, or Taliban um, uh, strong point. And so uh, I can remember calling and so I received my orders. I go through it and I had a, 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 a they're like, okay, you're going to take this convoy down. We think there's threats on the way. And I can remember the, the, the briefing we had seen and that's 400 kilometers. There had been 32 improvised explosive devices in the last 48 hours. So that's almost one an hour, somewhere on that 400 kilometers. And uh, we, though we had done some small stuff in Kabul and, and dealt with IED, uh, IEDs, they're called improvised explosive devices, nothing at that kind of scale or mass. Uh, and then there had been complex ambushes. And so we were very much like keyed up. And so I had thought, huh, the enemy doesn't have night vision. So you do your basic assessment as a, as a platoon commander, you think strengths, I can see at night. I can like, yeah. I can do things the enemy can't do. 
I'm going to, I'm going to move at night. So I put in my plan and my, my tactical leader, uh, my tactical manager said, yeah, good plan. Cause Kabul is a uh, city, I think of 5 million. And so just traffic alone, you're, if they see a major convoy leaving, everyone's got a cell phone. They're like, something's weird's happening and everyone's yeah. leaving. So I thought I'll leave at two in the morning. And that means we'll get down to Kandahar by kind of like 10 in the morning. And, uh, at the time, Ottawa was like, well, there's no one in the ops center. Like we won't be able to track you. And I, and you think that it's funny, like, like it's funny now. But, but it was deadly serious then. We didn't have a, a mature operational command group that would, would do it. And so they'd come back and said, no, like, we're not, like, we'd like, we'd prefer that you adjust your time. Um, you can leave early, but we'd prefer you adjust your time. And, and maybe it's just my understanding as a platoon commander, maybe that wasn't the whole reason, but, mm. but it seemed to be, there was some reason why all of a sudden my tactical plan that was to leave in the middle of darkness and, and, um, skin down knowing that the enemy doesn't cite their IDs so well. They have at the time, they rarely attacked in the, at nighttime. And so I was like, Oh, this seems like the best time to go. Cause when I did a clock assessment of when all the attacks had occurred in that 400 kilometers, it all occurred between nine in the morning and kind of, you know, it's like bankers hours for these guys. Right. And so I just wanted to work outside of that. Yeah. <laughs> and I was limited. I was told it was because there wasn't someone on, uh, or there wasn't duty staff, but, but I, like, I don't know, but I, I remember immediately thinking, huh. And then when I left Kabul, um, <laughs> I had no communications with anyone, uh, except occasionally I would connect with Americans, but because of things like cryptology and systems, it was always, um, shaky at best. And so you had this 500 kilometers of, of kind of like feeling like really on your own. And, um, uh, you would have to do your checkpoints with a satellite phone and, but you would call Ottawa, uh, rather than call Kabul. And, okay. uh, yeah. Hmm. And then you would, they, and so the Ottawa cared so much about it cause it was the first one, uh, that, that, uh, they had gone and there'd been some media that maybe didn't go as well as it could have. Um, and because there's been a lot of talk about like casualties uh, in Kandahar by this decision to move down. And so everyone was very sensitive about, um, what's going on and what it was going to do. And so, yeah, it was a very formative experience. And if I think about then returning in 2006 and 2009, and then finally, um, commanding a battle group, the systems that we then put in place to support people like that platoon commander that would have to go out into the darkness and do dangerous things, um, matured a lot and, and, and really got into a point of understanding, like, how do we support those people on the front end better from a command support perspective, from a, from a seriousness perspective. Um, and I think that's probably one of the biggest, um, pieces I would take away over that last 20 years is that we, we recognized that what we did was serious and we started treating it seriously. And I think that's a, uh, that's a great support to our people. Cause I think if we think about some of those lessons from the nineties, what commanders would say was I didn't feel supported. Like a lot of them were doing fantastic things tactically, but they didn't feel they could call home and, and get action, um, done. And I think that's been pretty, um, you know, whether it's Lewis McKenzie or other leaders that were put in very dangerous right. situations, I think that's been a common theme. And I think that changed, um, after general Hillier started to do that and really changed once we got into Kandahar. Okay. And so, I mean, you've, you had this, this, as you said, this sort of ladder where you went from, you know, corporal deployed and ultimately you were, uh, you know, you were a battle group commander in Latvia. Uh, and you know, what were the, what was the moment or the, the conditions where you went, okay, I think it's time for me to move on and do something else. It's, uh, it's not in the military. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think actually, um, like when you're a commanding officer of a battalion, which is kind of one of our, it's about 800 people. Um, you know, 
when you're just by yourself. And then when you add on all the people that help you, you get to about 1200 people, but you're still connected with that, uh, the groups of people that do things like it's very interesting. And, and, um, and so that level of command, um, you know, if you think about leader, manager, commander, um, you know, always a leader, sometimes a manager, sometimes a commander. Um, I, I maybe was, um, I thought it was, I think I was okay as the commander and I think it was okay as a manager, but that manager side is not something that I necessarily excited me. Um, and I wanted a different, uh, challenge and I had thought about a couple of things. Like I wanted, um, I got, I grew fascinated with, you know, kind of command and control. Uh, I thought it was very interesting having, having commanded a battle group of nine nations with nine different languages, with nine different cultures. And I found that was uh, really interesting and I wanted to kind of work in that space. And then I had gotten fascinated with my time in Latvia had shown me that, um, you know, it was just after Crimea had been taken by the Russians in a very kind of like non-traditional way where all of a sudden you had national elements that were non-attributable working inside of a nation that demonstrated a collapse and, and Russia achieved strategic aims without ever declaring war and, and seemed to confound um, everyone. And then we were in Eastern Europe to like stop that from happening again. And yet um, the battle group that was put in place to be the deterrent was a conventional deterrent in that, okay, we've put a force there. And if you come across the border, we'll enact article five and and we'll have a fight. But the threat wasn't that the threat was uh, potentially we're going to stand up a non-attributable force inside the, inside the uh, nation state of Latvia. And it's going to cause disruption to the point of, of being able to uh, uh, help us move, move that border. And I thought, Oh, this is a real problem. I got interested in that academically. And so I, um, uh, decided at that point to, you know, maybe pursue some higher education and, uh, pursue uh, my PhD, uh, in strategic studies. Um, and then I had an opportunity <clears throat> to move to New Zealand to help, uh, to, to, uh, work in, in, in that army, uh, to, um, help build their command and control, um, uh, out, uh, and mature that, uh, and from a training perspective. And so these two opportunities of the PhD and, uh, moving to New Zealand, which is pretty neat, um, uh, appeared. And I thought, it's been about 25 years since I haven't done something that specifically the army has told me to do. Right. And, uh, I thought this is maybe I asked my family and, and, uh, they were all in, like I, I could have maybe pursued a PhD here in Canada, but they said, no, like, let's, 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 let's do that New Zealand thing. That's awesome. So, so we went and, and did that and, uh, really, really enjoyed enjoyed uh, that country. And it happened that, uh, as I was there, uh, I was planning to like really take a backseat, the, you know, just kind of, um, work quietly, uh, with the defense force and, uh, do my PhD. And I thought, Oh, this is great. I live in a, now like a world classification spot. I got lots of time <laughs> for myself. And we had this little thing that started COVID and, uh, I immediately found myself, um, at the front end of, um, the New Zealand defense force had a role to play. And New Zealand did, um, COVID differently than a lot of other countries. And so early on, very early on, and after the identification of the kind of spread, they're an island nation. And they decided that um, the lockdown that they would try to pursue was a national border. And that would become the protection for New Zealand until we figured out what this disease was. And so they locked the border down and then started to allow people in. And the process of letting people in was to go into these um, two weeks of um, isolation. And it can be debated and discussed about individual rights and, and national rights. And I think that's it, that discussion does happen in New Zealand. But my job at the time was to help uh, set up the hotels. And they were 
very nice hotels yeah. <laughs> at, at the cost of the government. And when people got off an airplane, they would get on a bus and they would, everyone would be in like level five uh, protective equipment and uh, we, they would move them to hotel and they would spend two weeks in the hotel and then they were released into New Zealand. And for the population of New Zealand, there was no like mask mandates for a long time because there was no COVID in the island. Like my children went to school every day. They played sports. Um, there were a couple of, when there were breakouts, there would be a localized lockdown and there were two national lockdowns. But for the most part, um, I didn't experience uh, what I understand happened in different parts of the world. Um, and so I don't have a, I, I'm always kind of thankful for that. But also it was very interesting having this accent and then being responsible. You know, you can imagine you get off a plane as a Kiwi and this guy with a Canadian accent is like, no, no, trust me, go to the hotel for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, it was a pretty interesting experience. But again, it was a chance to, to uh, do some leadership in a different environment. Uh, I got a chance to understand, uh, you know, New Zealand uh, border security <laughs> yeah. and uh, I worked with their police forces and I worked like this little team that had to come together to solve the problem in a uniquely Kiwi way, um, I thought was really, really interesting. And uh, again, I, I don't really have an opinion on like the policy behind it, but but I think that um, it, it demonstrated like a national agility that I hadn't experienced before. And I thought that was very interesting. And I think it's a small nation. And so they can, they, and their federal level is very closely connected to their decision making at the tactical level. And so for me, that was super interesting because you can have like intent, strategic intent and it can be executed tactically, like literally that afternoon. Right. <laughs> and so that, that I found very interesting. The speed at which information flowed, I found very interesting for me. Um, and so that was, uh, yeah, it was a very, very good experience. And I really enjoyed, uh, I really enjoyed that. So now you're back in Canada um, and you work with uh, Team Rubicon. So what exactly is Team Rubicon and, and what do you do uh, as a member of that team? I'm the chief operating officer for Team Rubicon Canada. It's a veteran-led disaster relief organization. But it's got a tool with dual mission. One mission, of course, is to help those um, vulnerable populations in need in times of disaster. And that comes in the form of uh, all different types of assistance, everything from debris removal to um, uh, uh, heavy equipment to, to uh, chainsaw operations to be able to clear things during storms. And uh, that's the, the purpose. The secondary mission is actually about, uh, I, I think, is a quite a positive um uh, hand to uh, veterans and not just military veterans, but um, uh, ex first responders, uh, police, fire, ambulance, uh, and then awesome, uh, you know, uh, civilians that don't have any of that formal training, but want to be involved in something bigger than themselves. And I think what, what we provide to that population is people that have had a mission their whole life, uh, then get out of the military and they lack sometimes uh, an understanding of like, what is their identity without the uniform? Um, what is their community? They may not have settled in where their last base was and where all their friends are. And now they lack a community that understands who they were, or where they came from, and they can connect um, like that. And then lastly, purpose. Uh, I think everybody, when they lose that mission, they're looking for purpose. And I don't have any <clears throat> medical documentation that shows that volunteerism is good for veterans or good for transitioning people. But I, we, we believe as an organization that if you give um, identity, purpose and community, um, people's transition may be a little bit um, smoother and they can have a touch point. They take off the green uniform and they put on the gray shirt and they go help populations 
in need and they get to serve with people that were like them uh, for their life. And they get a, a chance, like a touch point back with that old part of life and the things they like about the military. We are not a military organization. The things that are good about the military, we try to inculcate the things that are like very controlling. We, we avoid. And I think that's a nice balance um, for them. And uh, we have all different types of folks and all different types of veterans at different parts of their journey. We've had people that have been uh, physically harmed during their, uh, during their, during their service, um, mentally or emotionally. We have people that don't identify as having had any issue whatsoever and, and just really want, want to go and help people. And uh, so I think that's an interesting mix. And so one of the cultural things we do that I, I really love is at the end of the day, you know, it's very much like you come back at the end of the day, you clean your equipment, you debrief, and then, um, uh, they, they say that you put up the beer flag and that's like the symbol that you can now have a beer, but the gathering point is campfire. <clears throat> and, uh, this is where you stand around and, and have an informal opportunity to just talk. And, uh, you talk about the day because working disaster sites can be hard. It can bring up different things. You see populations, um, in need and in their worst day, you're there with them. And so the campfire is there so you can share those like, um, stories of the day. And for example, I just came from a mission in Tantalan, Nova Scotia, and our job there was to uh, sift um, in the ashes. 151 homes were destroyed during a wildfire, mm. and um, we uh, did this piece. Like it didn't have to be done, but what we did is we'd, we would get dressed in full PPE, and then we'd go into the, where the home had stood, and we'd search for um, valuable. Uh, pieces that maybe survived the fire. And it's amazing what we found, like, uh, you know, family heirlooms of metals to things that probably had no value um, whatsoever. I remember the one thing that we did pull out of this one house was like this. It's like that the fire must have been so hot because it melted glass and it melted metal. And then, and then it all kind of came together in this like very beautiful, like um, molten, uh, design and then it, and then it cooled and it's hardened that way. And we pulled that out and the, and the family's like, we, we really want that. And, uh, right. we want that for when our home is rebuilt and we want to have that as a, as a connection to our, our, our old home. And so psychologically you share space with homeowners and, uh, you help them. I think and it seems like you help them move from like, they're standing in their past and they're identifying in the present and now they're, they're having to like take that first step into the future. And so once you go through and do a very fine sweep, pulling out everything you can, they now maybe feel a little bit better about the heavy equipment going in and, 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 uh, and, and just, you know, piling it and getting rid of it because they've taken anything of value out that connects them with their home. And so I think that is, uh, an amazing part of the organization, uh, because it's really focused on the people that do the work and it's focused on the people that you're helping. Whatever it is that you do, we do all sorts of different types of work, but it's really about the people that are in disaster um, and helping them through that period, that very difficult period. And I think that's a very valuable uh, thing. And I think it's very valuable for our veteran population to be involved in that type of thing. So the last question I want to ask um, is about, uh, and I'm going to wrap up, I think, all the uh, the episodes with this is educate, entertain, or elevate, and really an opportunity for you to make a recommendation. could be something to a listener to educate them, a book, a documentary, something to entertain. could be a, a movie, a show, or a, you know, a, a hidden gem in a town that, uh, that you particularly like, um, or elevate something. You know, a charity, uh, something that's near and dear to your your heart. Um, so, um, educate, 
uh, entertain or elevate? Well, you've already given me an opportunity to elevate Team Rubicon Canada, which is a charity that I would I would really push out uh, to everyone to support as much as they can. And so I think that I'll um, uh, kind of talk about a, a gem um, uh, that that is near my favorite my favorite trail, and um, uh, is the Chilkoot Pass in the Yukon. And I was lucky enough to have done it couple times and um, but it's amazing because it's like a walking museum and I would encourage all Canadians or you everybody I'd encourage everybody to if you have an opportunity and you want to experience the north and you want a connection with Canada as it was and maybe like live a part of like how Canada has become I think the Chilkoot Pass is an excellent way to really do that because you start in Skagway Alaska and um, hundreds of gold rush moved from there and they moved, um, uh, into the Yukon for, for gold. And to get in, the rule was you had to have a, a ton of equipment. And so, um, obviously things get heavy and things get dropped along the way. And so along the way of the trail, there's all these remnants from that time period. And you really connect in odd things. Like you see a, a, a boat with ribs in the middle of the forest in Alaska. Like, why is there a boat there? There's a giant steam engine in the middle of the forest because they use the steam engine as a cable car to try to get equipment up over the pass. Yeah. And that cable, that it just wasn't worth moving that steam engine afterwards. So you're in the middle literally of nowhere and you have these like vestiges of you know that pioneering spirit that someone in the 1800s had to move that huge thing of technology in there to help people, uh, you know, move on. And that kind of enduring spirit and, and, uh, pioneering way, uh, uh, and adventurism, I think is really valuable. And so, uh, I guess in terms of, um, uh, you know, giving a recommendation to your listeners, uh, if you're into, uh, going for long walks, I highly recommend, uh, the Chilkoot Pass because, uh, it'll give you uh, an appreciation of, uh, you know, uh, Canada at its beginnings. And I think, uh, maybe you can connect that to some of, uh, what we do. And it's just a beautiful spot. And the only way of getting out is, uh, by rail. So by the time you get to the end, there's a little rail car that will come get you. And it's really just a cool way to see the Yukon afterwards. Cause you're now, uh, you can't drive in there. You, have, you can only go out by rail car. And so I think that whole adventure of starting in like Skagway, which is a pristine, still kind of pioneer town, but you know, uh, cruise ships go in there. So it could be a little bit kitschy. And then you, you live hard on the trail for 67 or 68 kilometers. And then you come out the other end and all there is, is this little, um, shop that you'll wait for your rail car and they'll have a stew, a stew and a coffee waiting for you. And you get a fresh stew while you wait for your rail car. And then you'll take your rail car back and get off and, and get into Whitehorse. And I think it's pretty amazing for a whole bunch of reasons. You know, that could be a podcast on itself, the Chilku Pass. <laughs> all right. That's yeah. an awesome recommendation. Okay. Hey, Steve, thanks again for, uh, for being on the Northern Sentinels podcast. Really appreciate it. And, uh, uh, yeah, this has been fantastic. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. All right. Yeah. You can find information on the Chilkoot Trail, Team Rubicon Canada, and some additional background on Steve in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to the Northern Sentinels podcast, and goodbye until next time.